Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey, everybody. We got a really old guy on the uh, podcast today, as usual. But this guy is even older than Norm Ornstein, James Carville, Elizabeth Drew, Harry Reid, and Anthony Fauci. Norman Lear. The legendary TV comedy writer, producer, creator of groundbreaking sitcoms like The Jeffersons and Maud, One Day at a Time, and All in the Family. He joins me. And we are dropping this show on June 25th, 2021, two days before Norman's 99th birthday. Holy crap. So I've got a lot to talk about with, with Norman, uh, flying 52 missions uh, on a uh, on the B seventeen, the Flying Fortress in World War II, uh, writing for uh, a whole bunch of sh- the Jack Haley show. He did Jack Haley. Uh, you, you'll hear him talk about this. Jack Haley was the Tin Man. I'm just doing this for people younger than me. <laughs> and then creating iconic hit after iconic hit TV show, starting People for the American Way. Uh, which became a a favorite target of the nutcase uh, Christian right. Uh, the day after 9-11, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson blamed 9-11 on the abortionists and the feminists and gays and lesbians and the ACLU, people for the American way. I, I put my finger in your direction and say, you made this happen. Now, does that make them nutcases? I, I think so. But how's this? This this is I was watching the Seven Hundred Club. This is a few several years ago, and uh, I'm very interested in Pat Robertson, especially because he's a very happy Christian. That that's kind of his thing. He's very happy. Praise the Lord! Thank God it's Friday. Anyway, Pat Robertson. Uh, he was I, I was watching the Seven Hundred Club, and he said this: "There's a woman in Ohio who's just been cured." of her diverticulitis. Praise Jesus. How irresponsible, how irresponsible. Say you're a woman in Cincinnati who's got diverticulitis and and you're watching a 700 club and you hear Pat Robertson say, there's a woman in Ohio who's been cured of her diverticulitis. And this woman, she thinks it's her, but it isn't. It's a woman in Cincinnati but she thinks it's her, so she eats a bowl of nuts and dies. How many times did that happen? Because Pat Robertson was just so irresponsible. <laughs> okay, I'm going to be on tour, by the way. Uh, so I, I hope just to want to remind everyone of that. I'm doing a 15-city tour Starting September 18th uh, in North Haven, Mass. I'll be in Milwaukee and Minneapolis and Kansas City and Boulder. I'll be all over the place. And you can go to alfranken.com to see if I'm coming to your city and uh, how you can get tickets. I hope you do that. It's going to be a lot of fun. But now let's go to – I hope Norman liked the story about uh, the woman in Ohio with diverticulitis. I think Norma would like that. And I love my conversation uh, with the legendary Norman Lear, and I, I know you will too. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. 
living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Okay, let's start with, um, I, your dad was went to like prison, right? Or something? He did. He, he did. Uh, when I was nine years old, he uh, tried to sell some fake bonds or that's about what I understood at that time. And he served three years on Deer Island off the coast of um, Boston. And was that formative in any way or it was just a bummer? Or uh, <laughs> uh, how did that affect your mom and did it affect your comedy? Did it affect your whole point of view? It affected my, uh, it, it certainly affected my comedy a good deal. Uh, how? My mother was, a, we were living in Chelsea, Mass. I'm nine years old. My mother is ashamed to be living where we're living. And there are strangers in the house. It's two days after they took my father away. And one stranger is looking and talking to my mother about buying his red leather chair, which was the most precious item of furniture in my life. Because I used to sit in that red leather chair in Ottoman with my dad on Friday nights and listen to the uh, to the fights from Madison Square Garden. I never, if I lived to be a thousand, and I'd like that, uh, I could never forget that. Well, you're one-tenth of the way there almost. So this stranger puts his hand on my shoulder, and, <laughs> and he says, Well, Norman, you're the man in the house now. <laughs> oh, Somehow, I knew, I knew that was funny. You knew that was funny at nine. <laughs> okay. He meant it seriously, but you th thought it was really funny. In the most dire way. <laughs> okay. Well, I think you were, yes. That. <laughs> so you basically saw things funny from the start. And that wasn't the first time. <laughs> You're the man. Of the, you're the man of the house now. Yeah. Well, Norman, you're the man of the house now. <laughs> <laughs> and you were nine. My, my father had just been taken away. I was. <laughs> <laughs> and that was so helpful. He was being helpful, you know. Well, it was certainly helpful years later when I realized more and more how funny it was. Okay. Well, jump ahead. Well, I'm going to jump around, but I know you wrote a lot. For Martin and Lewis, right? Yes. Right. We had done the Jack Haley show. You and Ed Simmons. That was our first television show. In, we were in New York. It was in New York. We did it. Jerry Lewis saw a sketch on it and thought, oh, my God, he could have done that <laughs> a lot better than Jack Haley. And uh, he asked to see Meet Those Writers. And we did the first three years of the Martin and Lewis Colgate Comedy Hour. 
I just got to ask you what it was like working for Martin and Lewis, uh, particularly Lewis, but also Martin. <laughs> so Martin and Lewis, what was it like working for Martin and Lewis? It was uh, it was glorious uh, at the beginning. Jerry was uh, hilarious <laughs> and uh, and dear, very very dear, and he grew to be. Uh, uh, kind of the Pope, he over time grew to know everything and every everything about everything, and and was very very difficult with him. Uh, he became like the auteur that had to grind his own lenses, kind of Jerry. Yes, yeah. <laughs> he, he, it was amazing how he became something 180 degrees from the dear kid he was when we started. And how quickly was that? Because, I mean, obviously that was fame and success. and, and... It stretched out over a couple of years. Okay. Uh, so uh, now I'm going to back up again. So we're not going chronologically, but we kind of are. World War II. Yeah. I want to thank you. I want on, on behalf of the mediocre generation, I'd like to thank uh, those of you in the greatest Thank you, thank you. Generation who saved, uh, you know, mankind. So thank you for that. Welcome and thank you. It's hard to believe that all of that happened in the same lifetime. You were on a bomber, right? Yes, I was on a B-17 known as the Flying Fortress. And did missions over, you were out of Italy, were you? I got uh, out of Foggia, Italy, yeah. I got credit for 52 missions and actually drop bombs uh, 35 times. And your job was uh, radio? radio? And I had the top gun. That's dangerous. That was dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that? <laughs> Did anyone tell you? No, the guy telling me it was dangerous. I, 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 wasn't, I hadn't really noticed all the Messerschmitts in the air and the... Uh, and the missiles from the ground. I really didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> man, oh, man. So that's, um, I imagine that you may be the last of your crew around. Is that I am, accurate? I am the last of my crew, yeah. But what's interesting is, is you know, we do a pretty political show here, but uh, also we have uh, people from comedy, and you've bridged both. Uh, we like to have people who have bridged both, um, which I like to think I am. And... Um, you know, you form people for the American way, and it was named that for a reason. Am I right? Uh, yes, it was. You know, I didn't uh, wake up any morning of my life and say, I'm going to start an organization. What happened was I was watching the Jerry Falwells and Pat Robertsons and Jimmy Swaggerts and the other religious right figures on radio and some on television, mixing politics and religion. And uh, I knew that was antithetical to my understanding of the Constitution and the American way. And, and so what I did was uh, I wrote a uh, and cast a uh, one-minute PSA of a working guy on a piece of uh, uh, tractor equipment the camera panned in uh, and it pushed in on him as he said, uh, you know, he and his wife and kids sit around the dinner table and talk about politics all the time. And they disagree about many, many things. But now here come some ministers on radio and television telling him this is the way to think. And if you don't think this way, you're un-American. And, uh, He's learning all the time from these guys that he's un-American. Oh, no, that he's the full American at the table and his wife is un-American. And he knows uh -huh. his wife is the smartest person he, uh, he's met. At, he def in defending her, he finds his own point of view must be off somehow uh, because he winds up saying that's not the, the American way. Mixing politics and religion is not the American way. What year did you do that ad? Uh, 1973 or four. I want to cut to 9-11. Uh, 
Do you remember what Falwell and Roberts were on together and what they what they said about you and others about 9-11? No, refresh me. Okay, this is Falwell. I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, people for the American way, all of them who have tried to secularize America, I put my finger in their face and say, you help this happen. And Robertson said, well, I totally concur. <laughs> you sounded like him for that moment. <laughs> I used to do Robertson uh, because he was like a happy Christian. You know that? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but these guys... That was so pernicious. You know, Martin Luther King mixed religion <laughs> with politics, but he did it in a very, 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 very different way. And so is Raphael Warnock, who obviously is, you know, yes. this, uh, is from the same church. I mean, uh, a minister at the same church. And the people from the American way really took these guys on the Falwells and the Robertsons, and we're still, it's, it, we're, we're still living with that. We're still living with that divide. We see it very starkly of the evangelical right, mm -hmm. which uh, had its uh, control of the judges, which is uh, something I saw firsthand, and that is pernicious. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with the legendary Norman Lear. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I want to get back to how you got to Hollywood. You went to Emerson College. By the way, our engineer, I'm in New York right now, and the engineer here, Sam, uh, Samantha, is um, she went to Emerson, too, oh. and said that you endowed the school for kids who were in need. So she thanks you. I've, I've helped. I love Emerson. I wonder if she, is she listening to this? She is. I wonder yes. if, if this lasted, this song at that time when I went to Emerson. Emerson is marching, follow the lead. Of all the things you've done in show business, singing was not one of them. Uh, <laughs> no, there's nothing I wish to do more. I can't imagine anything lovelier by way of uh, earning one's living, spending one's life, than uh, looking into the faces you're singing for, singing to the appreciation, for the appreciation of a crowd. Well, how about making them laugh? Making them laugh. Standing behind an audience when they are guffawing, when you're looking at several hundred people in bleachers and uh, they guffaw, they belly laugh, 
They tend to come out of their seats a little, their bodies move forward, and then their bodies move back into the seat again. And in my life, I've never known a more spiritual, divine moment than watching several hundred people go for. And that's your studio audience. You shot on video. Yes. And you shot your what's called three camera. Always live in front of a studio audience. And, uh, yep, I I can testify to that. Uh, An audience laughing is really, there's, boy, oh, boy, there's almost nothing better. Nothing, nothing. Okay, so you get you you uh, you leave Emerson. You don't graduate from Emerson, right? Right. And because you go to the war, you go to the war. I, I enlisted. Yeah, we were uh, at nine eleven. We were rehearsing a play called Two Orphans" behind one thirty Beacon Street on the Esplanade, and uh, somebody came running down a fire escape to see. They had just fired on Pearl Harbor. I'll never forget that moment. The director of this piece, Two Orphans, was named Gertrude Binley Kay. And she talked like this. She was a Boston Brahmin who talked <laughs> like We loved her. I don't mean to make fun of her at all. That's her sound. She wanted to go down. She Her immediate reaction was to go down to Boylston Street and throw some rocks into this Japanese antique shop. (laughs) Okay. All right. I don't think, you know, if anybody had wished to do it, she would have done it. But but that was her reflexive reaction. I can never forget. So you you enlisted or you... uh... I, I... called my folks the next day or that day and said I was enlisting. My mother told me she would die if I did. Please beg me, beg me, and I didn't. But it wasn't a year before I couldn't handle it anymore, and and I had to tell her I was doing it, and I enlisted. And and uh, hence the fifty some uh, some missions. You yeah. get out, and uh, how do you get into show business? I had an uncle who was a press agent. Okay. Actually, what I wanted to be when I was a kid was a press agent because my Uncle Jack used to flick me a quarter every time he saw me. I don't know how many times, 10, 12 times that he saw me over the years, but he flicked me a quarter. That was my role model. I wanted to be an uncle who could flick a quarter. He said he was a press agent. I wanted to be a press agent. And when I was, uh, when as the war ended, I was still overseas. And uh, I wrote a letter and sent it to my Uncle Jack. And he sent it out to a number. Of, I, I just wrote that I was a GI. I just finished flying some missions. And I was coming home. All my life wanted to be a press agent like my Uncle Jack and so forth. And... Uh, I got one offer in the mail as a job and one offer as an interview. And uh, I, I took the job. It, it was, I think it was a smart choice because if you had gone to the interview, you might not, I might not be talking to you because you may not have ever done any, any shows. <laughs> 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 Who knows? Uh, so, okay, does that get you out to L.A. being a press agent? Uh, well, what we did in those, you know, there was a Danton Walker and a Louis Sobel and a Walter Winchell and a Leonard Lyons and there were Dorothy Kilgallen. And we wrote, you know, what we hoped were witticisms for our clients. Uh, Moss Hart, Kitty Carlisle gifted, I wrote this and, and Dorothy Kilgallen uh, printed it that uh, Kitty Carlisle gifted Moss Hart with a pocket flask measured to his hip while he slept. (laughs) (laughs) He napped. I see, I see. So that was a press agent then, was right. It's like writing tweets. Yes. (laughs) Okay, that's what you were doing. And they were printed by the columnists I mentioned, and that was my job. 
Okay, so is that is that a publicist? Is that what you are, a press agent, as a publicist? I came out to California to be a publicist and uh, met Ed Simmons, who wanted to be a, a comedy writer. And you two became a writing team. Our wives went to a movie one night. We were babysitting, <laughs> and we wrote something together. When, it, when they came home from the movies at 10.30 or so, I said, why don't we go out and see if we can sell this? There was a place called The Bar Music not far away. And I used to remember her name. She played the piano and told jokes. And we sold it to her for $40. And Pretty good. $20 was about a third of what I made selling door to door in those years. So so you were kind press agent, kind of door to door salesman? Yeah. Okay. So, so that's that's the beginning. It's just the... Uh, your your wives go out to a movie and you decide to write something <laughs> and then you sell it and bam, you're writing for Martin and Lewis. And then uh, you, you, we, we I wrote something for Danny Thomas. Man, I love Danny Thomas. I got a telephone number from uh, <laughs> a woman I know who was the uh, secretary for the agent who was Danny Thomas's agent. Through her, I got Danny's number, and I called him and told him I was uh, a writer and I had an idea for him, and uh, he thought I said I had a piece of material, and he was working with Wally Pop. That was his accompanist. God, I can't re believe I remember that name. Okay. With, <laughs> Wally Pop. Well, he was working with his accompanist because he was doing a bit the next night. Uh, at Ciro's, and it would be a crowd that knew his material and knew a lot about his work and so forth. He, would, he hoped he could find a four-minute thing that he could do. The very next night, I said, I've got that idea. And he said, okay, get over here. I said, uh, I'll be there in about three hours. <laughs> he said, you said you're in Hollywood. I'm in Beverly Hills. Get over here. You'll be here in 20 minutes. But I hadn't written this thing, and it was just an idea. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, he said, all right, I'll get over here by 4 o'clock or something like that. And he did it the next night. I, I was standing in the kitchen at Ciro's, and he, he did well. You know, he was great. Next thing I knew, we, I had an offer to come to New York and write. Oh, so now you're in L.A., then you go back to New York to write. Yeah. Okay. And eventually, and that that's where you met Martin and Lewis, or that's where you met Jack Haley? or where? I went back east to do the Jack Haley show. Okay. And that's how I met Martin and Lewis, because Jerry was coming on the television in the Colgate Comedy Hour. He saw a, a sketch I'd written. The one he thought he could uh, have done yeah. better than Haley. Even better than Ailey. Yeah. So now you're 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 in it. You're in show business. Really in show business. You're writing uh, uh, you're like head writers for the TV show. Either that or what producers. We were the head writers for the Colgate Comedy Hour, starring Martin and Lewis. Okay, I got you. So now you're big time. You're there. Boom. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and now and then then boom. How many years later? What are we talking about now? 70 <laughs> years later, 70 years later, uh, you're still, uh, still writing. You're still, but, but, and you do uh, a number of things. I know, uh, you know, I, 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 you did Divorce American Style. Was that, that a movie that you wrote? Yes, yes, yes. Divorce American Style. I loved it. <laughs> it was actually I I think I remember seeing that like what was it 1960 or something or 61 or something like that yeah 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 but of course the big deal the big unbelievable breakthrough in terms of not just your career but American culture is all in the family and that's 50 years now right yeah. 50 years ago but this is the 50 year celebration yeah yeah, 71, and it was like, I think in January 71. Yeah. And, you know, you were able to do political, well, uh, and social satire, uh, which I don't believe had been done. Had it? 
Um, you know, my answer to these questions are from what I've read <laughs> over the years. Uh, I, I'm not sure I knew it had never been done when, it, when we did it, but I've read over the years that, it, yeah, it was. Not in a sitcom. I mean, that was the week that was, was a, a satirical show, a news show. The Smothers Brothers. And the Smothers Brothers as well. Absolutely. Yeah, they, they came close. No, they did. They did absolutely nail on the head. They they were kicked off the air because they did nail on the head political yeah, stuff. Yes, they were kicked about off Vietnam. The yeah, no, no, they were. That's they were gone. Yeah, uh, you created Archie Bunker. You created this uh, lovable bigot. Is that fair to say? It's fair to say that's what everybody called him. And uh, then Meathead Rob Reiner is sort of the. Uh, the progressive in the house, the liberal, and that tension is there always. That's built yeah, into the show. Rob Reiner since he and my oldest daughter were six years old. When Carl and I lived uh, about three houses apart on Fire Island for a couple of summers, and mm-hmm. we became fast friends. And so I knew Rob as a little boy. Carl, hard not to be a friend of Carl Reiner's. I count myself as one um, in the last uh, number of years. Uh, whenever I get to L.A., I would go to his house. I would make sure I'd call him up. And he was at home. He was at <laughs> home. And you could just say, Carl, can I come over? And i come over, and he was so nice. I'd bring members of my staff, my Senate staff, over. And my God. And one night I had dinner with Mel Brooks and him, uh-huh. just the three of us. And that was pretty Pretty good. I dine out on that a lot. That's much better than, uh, yeah, I had dinner with uh, Ted Cruz. I had a friend who owned Caesar's Palace for a, a couple of years. I knew him well. And he called me one day and he said, you know, we have a house in Palm Springs and another one in La Costa. They each have five bedrooms. They're fully staffed, you know, and, and they're not used every weekend. Some weekend, if you're free, call the office and see if one of them are open. I did that, and the house in Palm Springs was open. I called Carl and Mel, Larry Gelbard, who was the greatest of the comedy writers. All all these guys are in your show of shows and Sid Caesars. Yes, and uh, John DeLuise, and uh, we were five couples. We went down to Palm Springs, and that resulted in about six years of Palm Springs and La Costa every year. The the same five couples. There, there were there were weekends when we'd arrive on Friday night, get up and have breakfast in our bedclothes on Saturday, and get out of our bedclothes Sunday night to go home. <laughs> That's how much we laughed. Boy, oh boy! And you didn't tape it, you. Asshole. <laughs> I don't think we were taping that way then. Of and, course not. Of course not. And you could retire, and Carmen, Carl, if you had those tapes. <laughs> Larry Gilbart came out of, uh, he had some work to do. He came out of the bedroom one afternoon and said he took some time and wrote a song for us. Uh, we called ourselves Yenemfeld, which is Yiddish for the other world. And so uh, we all sang, and then that became something we had to do, sitting at the table for every meal before we ate. <laughs> oh, Yenemveld, oh, Yenemveld, oh, Yenemveld, oh, Yenemveld. That was it, oh, Yenemveld. That was it? That was so it. So it was O oh, Tannenbaum, but yeah. you put in Yenemveld? Yenemveld. You know what I'm, I'm thinking? You guys weren't very funny. That group. <laughs> it didn't matter because we thought we were. I know. Well, you know, you thought you were funny, but Larry Gelbart, Kyle Reiner, Mel Brooks, Norman Lear, Don DeLuise. Eh. 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 <laughs> Annie Bancroft was no slouch also. That's Anne Bancroft, great actress, and, and Mel's wife. Uh, okay, let's. Uh, okay, so All in the Family uh, wasn't a hit right out of the bat, right? Right out of the gate. It took some weeks. It was uh, in about six weeks. 
It's starting to move up. I wouldn't call it a hit, but enough to be picked up for the following season. Right. And then then it was the number one show for I don't know, what, five right. years or something? Yeah. 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 And uh and then of course Sanford and Son and uh just the slew of huge, huge hits that you had. Good times. Uh, Maud. 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 Uh, and how many of these were spinoffs of spinoffs? Was Maud a spinoff of all in the... No, it wasn't, was it? Maud was based... Well, it wasn't a spinoff in the sense that I brought B. Arthur out knowing that if he did this role, they would all ask for her to do a television show. I didn't have the mod in mind and so forth, but I knew that B. Arthur wasn't going to do this guest shot without some phone calls. She, you got to build a show around her. Wow. Because she was hilarious and the role was perfect. Archie had been on the air for a little while, and I, I wanted somebody that could put him down, really tower over him and, and nail him. And uh, remembering my own family life, I knew there was nothing like an old neighbor, an old relative with a grudge. <laughs> Somebody who wasn't invited to Gert's wedding 22 years ago. You know, that kind of a grudge. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, <laughs> the author came on All in the Family as a cousin of Edith's that she hadn't seen for 25 years. So they were kids together. But she knew Edith when she met Archie and was totally against the marriage. So she came in with that grudge. And she was wonderful. And uh, I, 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 I didn't get home that night before I had a phone call because the show was earlier in New York uh, saying, you've got to do something with that woman. <laughs> and you did. And now that, of course, had the controversial uh, Maud gets an abortion Yes. Uh, yeah. Episode and um, do you th- do you think that you can do what you're doing then now or you can't or what's the difference? Well, I've been doing uh, one day at a time with Rita Moreno and Justina Machado, a, a Latino version of it. Right. Right. Uh, last up to last season, we did we did four years. I saw an episode where the census taker came, Uh (laughs) which was very funny. But we had a great time. There wasn't anything we wished to do that we fought over in terms of the network saying you can't do it. It was, we were wide open. Good, good. What do you, what do you watch now? What do you like now? Who are the young, uh, what are the shows you like, and who are the comedians you like? Uh, I don't like my answer to this question. Oh. Uh, it's somewhat of an addiction to what's going on, the news. Turn on Chris Hayes at 6 o'clock or so, and he's followed by uh, by uh, Rachel Maddow, who's followed by... Uh, What's his face? Who's followed by Brian? Lawrence O'Donnell. Lawrence O'Donnell followed What's by What's his Brian. face? And I can sit there for a number of nights watching those shows. And then somebody tells me, have you ever seen Shit's Creek? And then I will. Look. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my wife is very similar to that. I, I, I get a little, <laughs> I, I have it a little bit up to here at a certain point. And yeah. I, you know, I, I read a little bit. You do that, I know. <laughs> I wish I was writing more. I've got to loosen my head to writing more. Well, here's the thing about writing that uh, I, I've written by myself and enjoy that in a different way than I enjoy writing with other people. And I, listen, you're, you're talking about, I know you wrote for Rowan and Martin. I know you wrote for Martin and Lewis. There used to be teams. I came from a team, Franklin and Davis. My, I went to high school with Tom Davis, and we were a team for 20-some years. And uh, there are very few of those now. But when you're on the staff of a show, 
and all in the family, you had a writing staff, right? And yeah. and you break stories and you sit around the table and make each other laugh and work hard, actually. And um, I was talking to Conan O'Brien, I don't know, a couple months ago, COVID driving so many people crazy. And he said, I went into comedy to be in rooms with funny people. Mm. That's why I went into comedy. I love that. And isn't that it? I mean, that's right. To me, it's like that kind of writing is not work. <laughs> that's, I mean, it is sometimes, sometimes you hit a moment where it's a lot of, I mean, you're working hard, but when it's working, it's not work. It, it, the work, I associate deadlines with work. It's not work until there are deadlines. And when you have to finish something by a certain hour because there are a dozen actors on a stage waiting for the words. That's work. That that can be work. And that's a series. If you're doing a series yeah. that's that that that's happening every week or something, or that's happening a lot. But it's nice to have uh, you know a script and then a really, you know, a really solid script that has a great table read where everyone's laughing and then you're rewriting and you're, you're, you're feeling really good. Isn't that a, that's a great feeling, right? It's the greatest, the greatest feeling is having worked hard and written a script and then uh, three days of rehearsal, you don't see anything until the third night of rehearsal and you walk in and you see something that kills you that wasn't written, that wasn't in the script at all, the actors and the director found. Oh, my God, what a gift that is. Who who were the actors? Who was the directors? Who who were? Carol O'Connor as Archie and... and, and, uh, and but I mean, who, who came up with stuff? Who were the ones who came up with stuff? If you, if you saw enough of All in the Family, you could remember an argument Mike and... Uh, Archie had, they had to sleep together one night. Is this the shoes and the sock? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Don't you know that the whole world puts on a sock and a sock and a shoe and a shoe? And a shoe? <laughs> I like to take care of one foot at a time. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. It's just as quick my way. Wait a minute, that ain't the prank. You see what I don't? Don't keep doing it. Listen to me. <laughs> Suppose there's a fire in the house and you got it right in your life. Your way, all you got on is one shoe and a sock. My way, you got on a sock and a sock. You see, you're even. Suppose it's raining or snowing outside. Your way with a sock on each foot, my feet would get wet. My way with a sock and a shoe on one foot, I could hop around and stay dry. All these years later, Al, you remember that. Because yeah. it, was, it was so hilarious. Explain it to the folk. Because I can't. Well, it was they were getting dressed, and uh, and Mike uh, saw Archie. Or Archie saw Mike put on a sock and a shoe, and he said, "You're supposed to put on a sock and a sock, and then a shoe." And a shoe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, that was three minutes or two and a half minutes of utter hilarity. Gold. Gold. And it was a gift that the, that they found in rehearsal. I also that's all of this is coming from character. Yes. So that is uh you know the comedy of character, man. That is the key, isn't it? This was a gift of the characters and the actors playing the role. Oh, that was, yes. Yeah. Uh yeah. <laughs> that was a combo of and you got Rob Reiner who is you know, a world-class comedy director, obviously, brilliant, brilliant. and uh, and comedy mind, and Carol Connor, who was a world-class dramatic actor as well. I must have uh, interviewed thirty 
guys for that role in New York before I flew out to California to do some interviews in L.A. And I don't know if he was a 6th or 10th or 15th L.A. actor who came in to read for me. I mean, he wasn't off the second page before. My heart was pounding. I, I, I remember so clearly, oh, my God, I hope he's available. I hope we can make a deal. <laughs> And it wasn't like I had, like, I found Archie that I, that was in my mind when I wrote the script. I don't know, I remember what I had in my mind. But uh, he said... He, he replaced whatever you had in your mind with him. Yes. And uh, one, one of the great gifts of a career. Who, who else? Who uh, of all, you know... I mean, you had, uh, you know, Jimmy Walker, uh, who I did uh, stand up, you know, at, early on in both of our careers. And that, again, that was being, and just a funny guy. Just a funny guy. <laughs> there it is. You know, too. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> You know, casting is the acceptance of a series of gifts. Hmm. So who knew what I hadn't seen Jimmy Walker in a club or anything. He walked in, read a role, and I couldn't have imagined a Jimmy Walker in a million years, or a Carol O'Connor, or a Gene Stapleton, or hmm. a B. Arthur. Well, B. Arthur I knew because we were friends. I'd seen her in many things. Uh, but the gift of what a, what a glorious comedic actor can give you in a, in a role, I, I think it's a, I, I, it was a gift of birth to be somebody who could appreciate it as much as I've appreciated it, it, it nourished by it as much as I've been nourished by it. Well, okay, you're 98. <laughs> and the and the nourishment i think is a is a reason for you're being 98 <laughs> and i i saw you at uh at, at the kennedy center a number i don't know five years ago or something yeah yeah and you did a thing which just cracked me up and I, I can't do it as well as you and i'm probably a lot of stuff cracked me up so you don't but you said, I get applause just doing this because of how old I am. You know what I'm talking about? Probably walking across the stage. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Which was so both funny and, of course, everyone burst into applause. But that's what you did. You set it up and you, we didn't know what you were saying, what, what you were about to do. And you just walked. <laughs> and you were probably 94 <laughs> at that time, 95 spry. 95. Oh, my God. So pretty good. Pretty good. I hope, uh, okay, you got your uh, first uh, inoculation. And let's, Jesus Christ, hope that all this works, huh? What a time we live in. But I, I don't want to wake up the morning without hope, so. Uh, oh, no, no, no. We have amazing amount of hope. What I'm saying is, every day they're rolling. You know, the Biden team is rolling something out. Yes, that gives us hope. And today it was like, you know, it's basically doing things so that um, people of color can get mortgages, can can get, you know, have a home. I mean, if you look at when you came back from World War II, there's a GI Bill, but black veterans, soldiers coming back. They were redlined and couldn't buy a house. And, uh, you, you know, know, you yeah. mentioned black uh, soldiers. In my missions uh, out of Foggia, Italy, often we experienced the gift of the Tuskegee Airmen escorting us across, well, in their case, right across the, uh, the bomb site. Because the, the the fighters flying escort, it wasn't necessary for them. They weren't ordered to go across the uh, the bomb zone where the uh, where the missiles from the ground were thickest. 
But the Tuskegee guys, for the most part, did. And so when we saw those red tails, uh, I remember feeling better, if not literally safer. Mm-hmm. That's that's something. <laughs> that is really something. Man, Norman. Man, that's beautiful. Uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for a lovely evening. There it is. There's your dream, because I just, uh, you couldn't see me, but you should have seen, I, I wish we could have, you could have seen the joy on my face during you singing. You're wrong. I can see you, and I could see you all the way through. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. I mean, I couldn't literally with my eyes see you, but your spirit is so alive in me, I see you very clearly. Uh, you say that to all the podcasts uh, hosts. I, uh, I do, I, and I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.